Good morning again, Contact family. It's time for us to begin our lesson for today. Of course, we're continuing our study on the 8th century prophets, and we are in the book of Isaiah. I hope a lot of you guys did your homework and watched the Bible Project video about Isaiah chapter 1 through 39. That just kind of helps us get a good foundation for what's going on, what the big picture is, what's going on. And then uh, our homework for today is going to be to watch the second video on Isaiah that covers the rest of it. So before we get any further, let's go ahead and, of course, go over our goals. We want to get a basic understanding of justice, righteousness, and the 8th century prophets. Again, today, the verses that we're going to look at are going to talk about righteousness and justice. And that's continuing, as we've seen over and over, going to be a really important theme in the Bible. We're going to identify how these relate to Jesus' day, the gospel, and our current world. We're definitely going to do that. We're going to discover ways we, personally, and as contact, need to shape our lives to submit to God's way. Of course, we'll touch on that, too. And then the big challenge is to intentionally step out of our comfort zones to engage others with righteousness and justice. It's easy to sit in a room and think about these things. It's hard to go out and live them. But that's where we want to get to, and that's where Jesus is taking us. So, of course, we're continuing, like I already said, in the book of Isaiah. And we're going to start off back again with this same question that we asked at the end of last week. Who is the Holy Seed? We already know the answer to that. The Holy Seed is Jesus. But it's also the answer to this question that we asked last week, which is how will God accomplish his purpose. And that's really what what this idea is, is God has this big purpose in mind for his people, Israel. And later on, that's the purpose that's going to carry through to the church and the kingdom of God that we're a part of. And so how is God accomplishing his big purposes that he wants in the world, that he wants righteousness and justice, that he wants love and faithfulness, that he wants these things? So we're going to look at a section of Isaiah today from chapters 7 through 12. We're going to be a little bit in each of the chapters. We're going to try to go quickly through it. That's really hard to do. This is like drinking from a fire hose. There's way too much stuff that I really want to take time and slow down with. Uh, But there's just not time for all of it. And I'm even going longer than I'd really like to. So what we're going to do is go through this. And for our first bit of information and reference for this, what you need to know is that Ahaz is the king of Judah right now, and I'm putting up this slide with all this information. If you'd like to look at that later, you can. The only important thing I want to talk to you about is that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was not a great king in Judah. So this is, remember, the southern kingdom of Judah. And we just need to know that Ahaz is the king because the verses we're going to look at uh, talk about Ahaz some. And so that kind of gives us an idea. If you go back to previous weeks, the timeline will show you about where he was. Uh, he He's the king when... Israel gets taken away into captivity in the northern kingdom. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, and let's read this together. It says, Isaiah 7, 1, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, and grandson of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, set out to attack Jerusalem. However, they were unable to carry out their plan. Now this is God talking to Isaiah in verse 4. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of these two burned-out embers, King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, son of Remaliah. But this is what the Sovereign Lord says in verse 7. This invasion will never happen. It will never take place. Okay, so what's going on here for a second is these two kingdoms, they're both north of Judah. They get together and they say they're going to attack Judah to, you know, plunder, to take captives, to do all the kinds of things that these kings did in wartime. And God's saying this isn't going to end up happening. They, they think they're going to do this, and it's not going to happen. I'm promising you that this is not going to happen. Okay, so that's just the basic idea of what's going on at the beginning of the story here. And remember, as we're hearing this, the last thing we just heard is God talking about this holy seed in the last verse 
of chapter six. So now we're here in chapter seven, and we're going to see how these things start all working together. So let's read a little bit more, starting down in verse 11. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven, or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. So he thinks he's being real holy here. Then Isaiah said, Listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then. The Lord himself will give you a sign. So what's this a sign about? This is a sign that this invasion is not going to happen by Syria and by Israel. It says, Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. We've heard this verse before, haven't we? This is a really familiar verse. Now, it's important to know that in Hebrew, the word for virgin also is the word for young woman. And we'll talk about that again here in just a second. Verse 15. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Okay, so what's going on here is we've got this verse that we really recognize that we say this is a verse about Jesus. But when we're reading it here in Isaiah chapter 7, it seems like it's actually about something that's going to happen in King Ahaz's time. Remember, King Ahaz lives like over 700 years before Jesus is born. So this is a long time before Jesus. So what what's going on here? Because a prophecy isn't really that helpful like this if it's something that's going to take place hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. I mean, I could say anything and say it's going to happen in a thousand years, and you're not going to know if what I say is true or not. So there's something else going on. And in fact, if you go down a few more verses to the next chapter, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, Isaiah says, Then I slept with my wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Call him Meher Shalahashbaz, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. But before this child is old enough to say Papa or Mama, the king of Assyria will carry away both the abundance of Damascus and the riches of Samaria. So what the Bible is saying here is that this prophecy about how the young woman, in this case, because Isaiah already had a kid with her before, the young woman will have a child, is just talking about in the time it'll take for Isaiah and his wife to become pregnant and for his wife to grow the baby, for the baby to be born, and for the baby to get old enough to eat honey. So we talked about, you know, like there's a time when kids shouldn't eat honey yet, so it takes a little longer before they're supposed to eat honey. So we're looking at, this is like two years. So he's saying within two years, basically, uh, God says he's going to take care of this. And you say, well, what about, what about how that appears in the New Testament, because it seems like here it's actually talking to King Ahaz about what's going on with King Ahaz. Well, let's look. Let's go forward to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to look at a few verses there. This is chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, Joseph has now found out that Mary is pregnant. And so as he considered this, and he's considering divorcing her, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, now this time, virgin definitely means virgin, and that's a really big part of this story. But what's going on here? Because the first time we looked at this verse, it had an immediate application in the 8th century 
that was talking about what was going on. And now we're looking at this verse again, and it's being used, and it's explaining what's going on with the birth of Jesus. What What is happening here? Well, uh, let's talk for really, really briefly about how the New Testament uses prophecy from the Old Testament. So when the New Testament uses verses from the Old Testament, it's not always doing exegesis or, or explaining the passage. Because if you just give the straight explanation of what that verse means, that verse is talking about the son that Isaiah is going to have that's going to be assigned to Ahaz. But when it's using this verse in the New Testament, it's giving it a new meaning. And that's something that I can't always do, but that's something that God has permission to do as he gives inspiration to write the Bible. So fulfillment does not have to mean the Old Testament passage is directly related, but it gives it more fullness. So now this verse means more than one thing. And as the the writers of the New Testament, Matthew in this case, look back on all the scriptures, they say, hey, hey, you know what? In that section in Isaiah, we're going to read more of these verses in a second. There's all these things talking about this future king that's coming. And we know that future king is Jesus. And right after it talks about the holy seed, it has this thing about this virgin having a child. And in fact, Jesus' mother was a virgin when she was born. And so we can say, oh, God was doing something really sneaky in that he was giving a prophecy for the time, that he was also laying the groundwork for how he was going to come in and do incredible things in the future. So if you want to know more about this, if you want to look at other ways that the New Testament uh, uses the Old Testament, there's a great link in the description that I've used before from a guy named Kevin DeYoung, who did a great uh, write-up on some different ways that it's used. It's worth your time. I'm not going to go over all of it now. We're going to keep going. And so the question we're now going to ask is, if Emmanuel in the 8th century didn't mean Jesus coming, what did God with us mean to Judah in the 8th century? What did it mean for God to be with them at that time if it didn't mean his son? So we're going to continue reading. We're going to read in Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to kind of think about that question. We're going to have a few different questions in our mind. We're also thinking about how God's going to accomplish his purpose. We're continuing to think about the question about the Holy Seed. And now we're also saying, what did it mean for, for Emmanuel. And I'll go ahead and tell you, because some of this we're going to get in different ways, and I'm going to get in the weeds on things like I like to, that part of the answer to that is uh, God with them meant that God answered the promise that he made, and that God fulfilled the promise. And so God said that they were not going to come and invade, that, that Israel and Syria were not going to invade Judah, and that's what happened. So God was with them. Okay, so let's read. We're going to read from chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Okay, the time of darkness and despair, we're talking about uh, the war going on and any kind of bad things that are happening in the country because of the sins of the people. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, does that sound familiar at all? Galilee, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as the people rejoice at the harvest and as warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Think about those names that are given there for the ruler. Wonderful Counselor, someone who 
who has wisdom, mighty God, who has the strength, the power of God, everlasting Father, someone who lasts forever, Prince of Peace, someone who is peaceful, is bringing peace, not war. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Okay, so as we're talking about who this Emmanuel is, who this Messiah is, who this person is that's going to come from David's line, that's going to give fairness and justice in in contrast to the way that the kings have been. And we didn't talk a lot about this week the sins that were happening in in Judah, but if you think back to the past weeks and all of those things that have been called out over and over and over again by the prophets, uh, we just skipped those verses this week. Those are in this section too, because it's those same charges that are being leveled over and over and over again. And we'll see a couple of them in just a second. Uh, but this this king that's coming, that's going to do justice and fairness, that's going to break the yoke of slavery, that's going to turn things into a different way. It's going to rule forever from David's throne. These are big and exciting promises for Israel, for Judah, for Judah. It's hard sometimes because we call the whole group Israel, even though this is Judah and Israel at this time, the split kingdom. Um, but as we think about what it meant to them, what Emmanuel meant, it meant someone who was going to come and who is going to bring peace probably through being so powerful that other countries didn't want to fight them. And we think about that, and we're going to keep that that thought in our head for a second because we're going to deal with that a little bit later. Because we're adding another question to all these we're already asking. We're asking, you know, who's the Holy Seed? How is God going to accomplish his purpose? What does Emmanuel mean in the 8th century? Now the next question is, how will the future king rule God's people? So let's do some contrast. Let's look at uh, Isaiah chapter 10 for a second and then Isaiah chapter 11. And we're going to look at the difference between how uh, the people are being ruled at the moment versus how God wants his future king to rule them. So Isaiah chapter 10 verse 1 says, What sorrow awaits the unjust judges and those who issue unfair laws? They deprive the poor of justice and deny the rights of the needy among my people. They prey on widows and take advantage of orphans. Man, these are the groups that God is over and 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 over again telling us that we need to be paying attention to and doing the right thing for. God says to them, what will you do when I punish you, when I send disaster upon you from a distant land? To whom will you turn for help? Where will your treasures be safe? At this time, Judah had made a treaty with Assyria to protect them from Israel and uh from Syria. And of course, Assyria is who is going to take Israel into captivity. And God's saying, I'm more powerful than all these people. Who are you going to call to protect you when I'm ready to stop giving you another chance and it's time for me to punish you? There's nobody that you can turn to. But, but, chapter 11, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So how's this person going to rule? How's he ruling God's people? With God's spirit, with God's wisdom, with God's counsel, with God's knowledge. He's going to be paying attention to what God wants. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. 
He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of a deadly snake without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. So what is God's vision for his future kingdom? How is this, this, this king ruling? With justice, with fairness, he's following God. And because of the way that he follows God, because of the way that he puts God first, things go back to the same way they were in the garden. Because if you remember in the garden, people only ate plants. There was no eating, eating animals. And uh, that's a whole other thing. We, we're not going to talk about that today. But it's not until later. It's not until after the flood when people started eating animals. And so it goes back to this vision of the time in the garden where the animals and humans were all at total peace with each other. And there was no enmity. There was no fighting amongst them. Everything was safe. The children could go and could play with the lions, could play with the snakes, could play with whatever, and there was nothing to worry about. Because with the knowledge of God and following God, God's creation, it's to go back to the way that things were supposed to be at the beginning and that God wants to bring us to again so God can start actually doing with us what he had designed us to do at the beginning. So God's future vision for his future kingdom is, is the Garden of Eden. But now as a city, that is God's city where God's king, which we're going to know later is Jesus, rules with justice and righteousness. Let's read a little bit more from that section in Isaiah chapter 11. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people. Those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt in southern Egypt, Ethiopia, and Elam, in Babylonia, Hamath, and all the distant coastlands. Notice in this section where God is saying he's going to bring his people from all the different places where they're scattered to back to Jerusalem. Keep that plugged away up here for a second. He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. Then at last, the jealousy between Israel and Judah will end. They will not be rivals anymore. They will join forces to swoop down on Philistia to the west. Together they will attack and plunder the nations to the east. They will occupy the lands of Edom and Moab, and Ammon will obey them. The Lord will make a dry path through the gulf of the Red Sea. He will wave his hand over the Euphrates River, sending a mighty wind to divide it into seven streams so it can easily be crossed on foot. He will make a highway for the remnant of his people, the remnant coming from Assyria, just as he did for Israel long ago when they returned from Egypt. Okay, so when you hear this, there's some different things going through your head. On the one hand, there's stuff that sounds like everyone's going to come to God's to God's kingdom, and it's going to be this great place of peace. And then all of a sudden, you have this stuff where it says Israel and Judah are going to get together, and they're going to go and knock out all the forces around them, and they're going to, they're going to beat down everybody else. And you say, okay, there's some war stuff going on here. There's some peace stuff going on in here. There's all this stuff about God's people returning who are far away. He's going to make it easier for people to come together. And he's going to be doing something new. He's going to make it to where there's nothing that people have to fear and worry about anymore. So we're saying, how, how do these things fit together? What does that mean for what we think about Jesus? And so that's the question is, what did Emmanuel mean next? 
in the first century Israel, so in Jesus' time. So we were in B.C. before, now we're in A.D., first century A.D. What did this mean to them? So after Jesus has been doing all of these things that look like this king, he's been bringing justice, he's been bringing fairness, he's been following the Spirit of the Lord, he's been healing people, he's been finding people who are poor, who are needy, who are orphans, who are widows. He's loving them. He's bringing them into his kingdom. He's drawing them close to who he is, to what God wants for them. So he's doing all of these things that look just like this king, except for the part where the king is like enthroned and is in a kingdom. And of course, we know that Jesus' enthronement from other passages is actually the cross, and it's a whole different kind of enthronement than what we were expecting. But the people of Israel are expecting a warrior king to come in and to set things right and to establish the throne in a human kingdom way. And so that's what everyone else is thinking too. That's even what the disciples are thinking. So they've been following Jesus for three years. They've been there for the miracles. They've been there for the teachings. They've been there for the crucifixion. They've been there at the resurrection. They've been there for all of these pieces. And in Acts chapter one, verses three through nine, It says, during the 40 days after Jesus suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Okay, so king talking about the kingdom. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Jesus is like, something big is going to happen. You're ready for it. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? What are they asking? They're asking the same thing that that we just talked about a second ago. They're expecting Jesus to say, okay, now it's time for us to get our swords together and we're going to ride on Rome and we're going to set up this kingdom and we're going to be the powerful ones here. We're going to be the strong ones here. And Jesus says, well, the Father alone has the authority to set these dates and times and they are not for you to know. You see, Jesus answers the question with what's actually going to happen, not with what they think is going to happen. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, and they think, right, he's about to get on his horse and ride, and they're going to go fight. Instead, he was taken into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. Well, that was not what they were expecting to happen. They were expecting Jesus to stick around on the earth and go become king the way they expected a king. And instead, Jesus leaves, and they can't see him anymore. So they wait in Jerusalem. They uh, fill Judas's spot, and then they're hanging out, and something new and exciting happens. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like, the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames of tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages. The Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Okay, think back to what we've read earlier. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. What did we read about earlier? We read about people from all over 
who were spread apart, coming back to Jerusalem, to God's holy mountain, when God was about to bring something new to pass. And what ends up happening here? We're not going to read any more of this section. But how did God fulfill his prophecy to Isaiah? See, we thought it was going to be a war. We thought it was going to be a king who set up a throne and established a kingdom. But the kingdom was different. And the way God did it is he brought the people from all over and he brings them back to Jerusalem and he teaches them about what Jesus has done. The disciples and Peter, you know, bring this sermon. 3,000 are baptized that day. And the community starts transforming. And the way that the people of God start taking care of each other and loving each other shows this justice and fairness and rightness and being driven by God and listening to what the Spirit is saying and listening to what the Spirit is saying and listening and going out and doing what the Spirit is saying uh, and, and, and really just fulfilling all of this stuff that Isaiah had talked about in the first place. And so it's a really unexpected way that it's fulfilled, but all of it's been unexpected, right? Because we have all these passages that talk about Jesus and who Jesus is going to be and we might talk next week some about Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant, which also gives us more context about who Jesus will be. But this idea that they thought it was going to be a king. They thought it was going to be a warrior. But instead, it was God come in the flesh to lay down his life, who is now enthroned forever. But his kingdom doesn't look like the kind of kingdoms we expect. His kingdom is one built on the foundation of righteousness and justice and love and faithfulness go out in front of him. And that's what we see the people of God doing and the kingdom of God doing. And so they say, as we read in Isaiah chapter 12, we're going to read a couple more verses from it. It says, Sing to the Lord, for he has done wonderful things. Make known his praise around the world. Let all the people of Jerusalem shout his praise with joy, for great is the Holy One of Israel who lives among you. Isn't that something that we can say and that we can proclaim today? Isn't it so good that we get to share his praise around the world? Maybe for us, it's just in our neighborhoods, but that's something that we get to share. And great is the Holy One of Israel because God, God's spirit lives among us here and works with us as we go out. So then the question is, what does Emmanuel mean to the 21st century contact? What is God with us mean here? And God with us here means the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't mean war. And it doesn't mean we're going out and fighting battles with swords and with chariots, and that we're trying to establish Jerusalem as the holy kingdom somewhere. What it means is we are God's kingdom. And everywhere we go, we bring this message and we carry it out to all the people. And we show, not just with words, but with our actions, with our love, with the way we do justice and we do righteousness, with the way that we walk with humility before God, with the way we show mercy and grace, with the way that we carry out the things that our king did and continues to do, we also show and reflect those things. So, what's your part in bringing God's kingdom? Well, we've already talked about some of those things. Your part is to continue to do the work that the disciples were doing in Acts, to continue doing things that help others to understand and feel the love of God, to draw them close to God, to say whatever has been hindering you from living out the life that God wants for you. Now is the time that we get to change. Now is the time that we get to turn to Jesus. There's something better in this world for you today. There's a kingdom that has no bounds. There's a kingdom that's full of love and grace. There's a kingdom that is built on righteousness and justice.
may we bring that. So as we bring that, why don't we together pray the prayer Jesus taught us that talks about this um, and some of the things that we are called to do and that talks about this kingdom. So join me in praying the Lord's Prayer together. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May we continue to bring God's kingdom here as it is in heaven. Love you guys. I'll talk to you next soon. Uh, keep on thinking souls.